0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh, wow. Look at that. It is time for another episode of Dark Poutine. We are the Dark Poutiniest. This is Matthew Stockton over there, and I am Michael Brown.
1: You pointed at me when you said that. I did. We haven't recorded in a few weeks. Have you missed me like the deserts miss the rain? Yes, I do know that. Anyway, yeah, let's get on with it. This
0: is an interesting one. And uh, at the end of the show, you pointed something out to me while we were sort of chatting that I was really surprised by. But we'll get to that. Okay. Okay.
1: The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of CuriousCast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment.
0: Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf
1: down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, you. pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately.
0: Montreal, Quebec, on the evening of April 10, 1734, a fire broke out in the home of Madame de Francheville on Rue St. Paul and quickly spread throughout the city. Raging for hours, it destroyed over 46 buildings, primarily residential homes, and the Hotel Dieu, a hospital that provided medical care to soldiers and people who were too poor to care for at home. There were rumors that Madame de Francheville's Portuguese-born black enslaved servant, Marie-Joseph d'Angélique, had started the fire as an act of rebellion on learning she was to be sold and sent away from her lover, a white man named Claude Thibault. Angélique was arrested and subsequently tortured until she confessed to setting the fire. She was then convicted of arson and hanged on June 21, 1734. The fire significantly impacted Montreal's development and led to the creation of new building codes and fire prevention measures. The event remains integral to Montreal's cultural and historical heritage and yet another dark spot on Canada's history. Some have called Angelique a heroine, others a scapegoat. Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is lost to time. This is Dark Poutine, episode 264. Montreal is burning. Angelique and the fire of 1734. Before the arrival of Europeans in Montreal, the area was inhabited by indigenous peoples for thousands of years. The region was home to several indigenous nations, including the Gana Yehega, Mohawk, Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, and Huron-Wendat peoples. These indigenous communities had established complex societies and cultural practices adapted to the local environment. They had their own languages, spiritual beliefs, and social structures, and relied on hunting, fishing, and agriculture for their subsistence. The arrival of Europeans in the 16th century had a significant impact on indigenous communities in the region. European diseases such as smallpox had a devastating effect on the indigenous populations, and European colonization led to the displacement and marginalization of indigenous peoples. Despite these challenges, indigenous communities in and around Montreal have maintained their cultural heritage and traditions. Today, the city is home to several indigenous communities whose lineage can be traced back for thousands of years. They continue to have a significant presence in the city and contribute to its cultural and economic life. In the 18th century, Montreal was a rapidly growing but small, walled city of just over 2,000 with a relatively diverse population. The city's location at the St. Lawrence and Ottawa Rivers confluence made it a vital fur trade hub, attracting traders from France, England, and indigenous communities across North America. The fur trade was the primary industry in the area and was a significant source of wealth for the city's merchants. Montreal was also an important center for religious and political activity. The city was a seat of the Governor-General of New France, and several important government buildings, including Chateau de Ramazay, were located in the city. In addition, the Catholic Church had a strong presence in Montreal, with several large churches and religious institutions in the city's center. Montreal in 1734 was a society that was divided along religious and ethnic lines. The French and English populations were roughly equal, with smaller communities of indigenous peoples, enslaved Africans, and Jewish merchants. The Catholic Church strongly influenced daily life in the city. Despite the solid Christian beliefs practiced by most of the city's inhabitants, parts of early Montreal were built on the backs of enslaved peoples. Slavery in Canada in the early 1700s was present, but relatively limited in comparison to other European colonies in the Americas. Owning enslaved people was primarily confined to the French colonies of Quebec and Acadia and used principally to support the fur trade and agricultural industries. According to author Afwa Cooper, a Jamaican-born Canadian historian, in her book The Hanging of Angelique, the history of black enslavement in Canada began with a young Madagascar boy brought to the country by an English pirate and a Quebec clerk. In 1628, David Kirk and his pirate crew attacked and captured the French colony in Quebec, bringing a nine-year-old African boy with them. Kirk sold the boy, whose original African name is unknown, to a Quebec clerk who later sold him to another clerk, Guillaume Couillard, a friend of Samuel de Champlain, and you'll recognize that name as one of the founders of the New World. By 1632, The Kirk family had left the colony and Quebec had returned to French control. The boy was baptized in 1633 and given the name Olivier Lejeune in honor of his godfather, Jesuit priest Paul Lejeune. Olivier lived in Quebec for the rest of his life and died there in 1654. Enslaved people in Canada during this period were primarily indigenous and African people brought to Canada through the transatlantic slave trade. Many of these individuals were forced to work in the fur trade, where they were employed as laborers, hunters, and guides. Others were used to cultivate crops, such as tobacco and hemp, in the agricultural regions of Quebec. The treatment of enslaved people in Canada during this period varied, but conditions were generally harsh. Enslaved people were subject to physical punishment, sexual exploitation, and forced labor, they were also denied fundamental rights and freedoms and considered their owner's property.
1: Mike, I think um, potentially a lot of listeners our age are up mm-hmm. will be surprised that Canada actually had slavery.
0: Right, because we were inundated with things about the Underground Railroad and how Canada should be proud of what we did to help escaping slaves from the United States, but we conveniently ignored the fact that we actually did have slavery
1: here for several centuries. Until about the eighteen thirties. Yeah. Um, it was just never taught. And Canada, the Canadians who did do the Underground Railroad should be proud. Of course. But it's this is a fact of, of the history of our country that somehow um was left out for us. For for I don't know if the younger I don't know if the Millennial or Gen Z get taught it in school. Right. But, they prob- probably probably do. But we didn't. Yeah. Yeah right so a lot of i bet there's a few at least a few people listening going i had no idea we actually had sanctioned slavery in canada
0: we approach this from our generation x yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, lens so yeah. Uh, yeah we can't do it from from that any other way no so <laughs> but we're learning we're learning we're still learning we're down with the kids we're down you know, I just think of that Steve Buscemi meme with his, you know, when he's dressed like a teenager with a skateboard over his shoulder yeah. and it's like, hello, fellow teenagers. <laughs> oh, dear. One of those enslaved people was Marie-Joseph Angelique, who came to be called simply Angelique. As record keeping was sparse during Angelique's short life, especially regarding enslaved people, little is known about the young woman's life. Angelique's exact birth date is unknown. However, it is believed that she was born on the Portuguese possession of Madeira in 1705. According to author Afua Cooper, Angelique's journey across the Atlantic likely took her from Portugal to the Low Countries, Flanders or the Dutch Republic, and then to the English colonies in New England or New York before finally arriving in New France. By the time she arrived in Montreal in 1725 at the age of 20, She had already been sold at least twice and had lived several places on both sides of the Atlantic. It is unclear how she came to be enslaved or whether she was born into it. However, it is believed that she was sold to a Flemish man named Nickus Bloch while in Portugal. In approximately 1725, Angelique was purchased by François Poulin de Francheville, a prominent businessman in New France, who brought her to work in his home in Montreal for he and his wife, Therese de Couain. You know,
1: I'm a classical libertarian small L that has a lot of focus on individual freedom. Sure, yeah. Like, we've had a lot of discussions, right? Like, (laughs) like I get my back up on lots of things. Yeah, for sure. So I cannot understand how people have ever felt the right to enslave other human beings. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't think, I think most people in the country right now probably agree with that but i'm sure some disagree with it oddly there's still human trafficking out there Mm -hmm. but just this to me is just the ultimate evil yeah well a lot of times
0: because they were people of color or indigenous peoples they were seen as other or less than
1: for some reason i just i don't i don't get it (laughs) yeah (laughs) well I, i did i that sounds stupid but i don't like how can people do
0: this to each other that's a good question. They convince themselves somehow that it's the right thing to do. Okay. You, you you can't be doing something that you think is the wrong thing to do. You just can't be doing that over and over again, because you would, that would in, indicate that you had a conscience that you were going against. And if you're doing this kind of thing, you have had to have justified it to yourself somehow satisfactorily. Pretty deeply. Yeah. François Poulain de Francheville was born on October 7th, 1692 was a merchant and a member of the Montreal bourgeois. He was an entrepreneur involved in the fur trade and the Saint-Maurice ironworks. He also served as a seigneur. Seigneurs were the individuals who had been granted a fief by the French crown, which included associated rights over persons and property. These individuals were typically nobles or merchants. The English equivalent would be baronet. Francheville's wife, Thérèse de Couain, had been born in 1697 to a wealthy family of merchants and landowners. When Francois and Thérèse were married on November 27, 1718, it was in front of the governor of Ramazay and all the elite of Montreal. According to parish records, the couple had at least one child named Marie-Angelique, baptized on October 3, 1719. However, a later census indicated no children in the home, so it's presumed that the little girl had passed away. When 24-year-old Marie-Joseph joseph Angelique came into the employ of the Francheville home, under Therese's supervision, she was responsible for the upkeep of a prosperous household, which involved performing various domestic tasks, such as cleaning, cooking, doing laundry, and running errands. Between 1731 and 1732, Angelique had children, fathered by another enslaved person named Jacques César, who belonged to the merchant Ignace Gamelin. Unfortunately, all of the children died at a young age. Eustache, baptized on January 11, 1731, passed away a month later on February 12. In May of the following year, Angelique gave birth to twins, but the boy, Louis, died the next day, and the girl, Marie-Francois, passed away five months later. It is unknown whether the relationship between Jacques, César, and Angelique was voluntary or enforced by their owners. The barbaric practice of breeding enslaved persons was considered a profitable business strategy, allowing enslavers to increase their workforce without purchasing additional slaves. In addition, enslaved women were often dehumanized and subjected to sexual violence and exploitation, and their children were viewed as property, livestock that could be sold or traded for profit. Regardless of whether or not the relationship between Jacques César and Angelique was forced, By 1733, it was done. The same year, Claude Thibault, a former French soldier, began his work as an indentured servant at the Francheville home. Thibault immediately caught Angelique's eye and the two began to have a clandestine affair. Afua Cooper indicated that it was unclear whether Angelique was indeed in love with Thibault. However, he also presented her with practical opportunities that Jacques César could not provide. Thibault was a white Frenchman which allowed him to pose as her slave master if they were to escape together. As a former soldier, Thibault possessed knowledge of the frontier terrain that would aid them in their escape and prevent them from getting lost in the woods. Sir Francheville fell gravely ill in November of that year and quickly died. Ownership of all his property was transferred to his wife. Francheville bequeathed to his widow a valuable property measuring 43 feet by 60 feet on Rue Saint-Paul in Montreal. The property included a two-story stone house and was a significant asset. He also left her an irregularly shaped farm of around 10 by 16 arpents, I'm not entirely sure what those measurements are, in the parish of Saint-Michel, consisting of several buildings and grazing lands with 15 acres dedicated to cultivation. In addition to these assets, his wife inherited his interest in the Saint-Maurice Ironworks including his personal investments, the Seigneurie of St. Maurice, and a small annual income derived from using these lands as capital assets. The inheritance also included ownership of Francheville's slaves, including Angelique, and Claude Thibault's contract of indentured servitude. Perhaps seeing an opportunity in the days after Francheville's passing, Angelique asked the grieving widow Francheville for her freedom. The answer was a resounding no. Madame Francheville needed every asset available to handle the household's business. Therese, who'd been known to whip Angelique while her husband was alive, had not softened after his death. Quite the opposite. She was more demanding than ever on her housewoman. Angelique was no pushover. She resented Therese and began talking back to her mistress without caring about the repercussions. Angelique did all she could to undermine and make life miserable for Therese and the rest of the free white servants in the Francheville house. From Afwa Cooper's The Hanging of Angelique, quote, Angelique went on a small reign of terror in the household. She talked back to her owner, threatened her with death by roasting, quarreled with the other servants in the house, threatened them too with burning, and made life so unbearable for her fellow servant Marie-Louise Poirier that she quit her job. Madame Francheville, seemingly unable to defend herself or the harassed servant, promised Poirier that she was going to sell Angelique in the spring, and then Poirier could come back to work for her. Slave woman and slave mistress declared psychological war on each other and bided their time. Madame Francheville had the upper hand, or so she believed. Claude Thibault was also making life unbearable for his employer. Like Angelique, he was disobedient and insolent, and his mistress could
1: not control him either. End quote. So when he did the quote about roasting, Mm -hmm. I was totally imagining a comedy central roast. Oh, no. (laughs) Picture Angelique going, well, 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 look at you all dressed up in your finest silk gown. If you keep up like this, the church might mistake you for a Huguenot and excommunicate you faster than you can say poutine. Oh, dear. (laughs) But, um... Insolent and disobedient. Yeah, yeah, I would have been too. Sure,
0: right. It's hard to say how I would react in that situation. I mean, there have been times in my life where I've just kind of rolled over. Yeah, you know, for one reason or the other. Like I, I essentially gave my power to the to somebody else. Yeah, and I'm not happy that I ever did that, but it's what I did. What I thought was necessary to do at the time.
1: Right, and then this is a much more extreme. Yeah. Version oh of my that. gosh, yes. Yeah. I'm not comparing no. my life to an enslaved person. No, obviously. And it must have been hard being stuck in a position like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of like you're taken to a alien planet. Yeah. Where you have no control right. over anything. Right. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. Afterward, Therese began arrangements to sell the troublemaker Angelique to a slave trader. Angelique, aware of the harsh realities of the Atlantic slave trade, particularly the likelihood of her being sold to a sugar plantation in the Caribbean, pleaded with Therese not to sell her. Therese, however, persisted. Angelique had no choice but to attempt to run away, and she secretly began plotting her escape with Claude Thibault, whose indentured servitude contract was soon ending. As the new year, 1734, began, the tensions between Angelique and Therese increased, Fed up, Therese finally had a buyer for Angelique, selling her for 600 pounds of gunpowder to François-Étienne Couguenet, a Quebec government official and entrepreneur. On learning of the sale, Angelique finally changed her tune, telling Therese she would behave and begging her mistress not to sell her, but it was too late. Therese was more than ready to be rid of the young woman. Angelique's change of heart was short-lived, and angrier than ever, she threatened her mistress saying she would burn down the house. Fearing for her safety, in her own home, Therese Franchville called upon her niece, Marguerite de Coen, to come and live with her. As the pending sale loomed, Madame Franchville claimed she was frightened of Angelique, who she believed was plotting to set fire to the house with her inside. Well,
1: boo-hoo. Right. What does she think is going to happen? Yeah. I think that goes to show sort of how ingrained in society this sort of slave-slave-owner relationship must have been where she's suddenly surprised that she should feel endangered.
0: Right. On February 22nd, 1734, the house's servants made a shocking discovery. Angelique's bed was ablaze and Thibaut's blanket was engulfed in flames. Two houseguests in the quick-thinking house staff put out the fire before it could do any serious damage. After that, Angelique and Claude ran away, hoping to reach the English colonies and catch a ship to Portugal. The fire, some believed, was deliberately set by the pair to cover up their escape. However, they didn't make it far. Due to the harsh winter weather, the couple was forced to seek shelter after making it only 60 miles. Unfortunately, they were captured and brought back to Montreal. Claude was imprisoned for breaking his indentured contract, while Angelique was returned to Thérèse. Punishments for runaway slaves in the 1700s varied depending on the time and place. In some instances, enslaved people caught running away were subject to physical punishment, such as whipping or branding. If the runaway slave was caught multiple times, the penalty could be even more severe, including amputation or death. But Thérèse did not severely punish Angelique for running away, likely because she did not want to diminish her value in the slave markets. Therese did not want to lose money on damaged goods. Angelique constantly feared being sold and loudly voiced her frustrations and fears with other enslaved people, nearby servants, or anyone else within earshot. She continued to make public threats against Therese, which left an impression on the neighbors. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, what are your thoughts on uh,
1: Angelique and the burning of Montreal thus far? Well, I was thinking a little bit more about why slaves didn't revolt in Canada or any other country, like like a total uprising, because there were mm-hmm. a lot of people, right? Right. And I think it's easy for you and I to sit here going and think, hey, why didn't they do it? Yeah. And uh, if, but if you, if you think about it a little bit more deeply, like the slave owners probably had lots of tactics, tactics around psychological repression and control and physical. Right. Mm -hmm. And the slaves would have been denied access to any sort of education or materials and, and not able to congregate to plan probably.
0: Well, punishment usually happened for offenses like talking back or escape Right, the punishments were usually doled out in front of all the other slaves on the property. Right, so that that
1: psychological
0: warfare. Right, right. like so. And for example, if you see somebody else getting their hands or foot cut off, yeah, you're, you are probably to, more uh, less likely to react in a way that is going to
1: get you into that kind of trouble. And there's probably a level of hope. Hmm. Hope of maybe someday I'll be freed, and if I misbehave, it will never happen. Or oh, on which the is other- which is sick. Right. Right? That's the sickest thing. Or
0: on the other side, it's resignation. Yeah. This is the way it is and there's nothing that I can do. Yeah. The day of the fire, April 10th, 1734, was unusually mild. The streets of Montreal were bustling with people making their way home after attending evening prayer. Therese de Francheville, owner of Angelique the Slave, was among them. Meanwhile, two young girls played in the muddy street under the watchful eye of a sentry in front of Hotel Dieu. A young indigenous slave named Manon kept an eye on them while visiting with Angelique, who was waiting for her mistress to return. At seven o'clock that evening, the sentry sounded the alarm. Fire! The hospital bell soon followed suit, ringing out through the city. A fire had erupted on the south side of Rue St. Paul and spread quickly. Despite the best efforts of law enforcement, the fire was too intense for the men to get close to it. The streets, already muddy from the thaw, soon became impassable. People sought refuge at Hôtel Dieu, but soon the fire spread to the hospital, leaving many homeless and panicking. In less than three hours, the fire destroyed 45 houses, leveled the Hôtel Dieu, and left hundreds of people without shelter. With the ashes still smoldering, the city's leading merchants wasted no time making their way to the registry on Rue Notre-Dame. Pierre Lestage was among them recounting to the clerk his harrowing experience of the fire and staggering losses he had sustained. As the wealthy recorded their damages, they knew that registration was vital to protect themselves from potential lawsuits by their associates in France or elsewhere in the vast territory of Nouvelle-France. Even public employees had losses to declare, with the notary Gaudron de Chevremont bemoaning the loss of accounts, invoices, and other vital documents. The king's prosecutor, François Fouché, also suffered setbacks in his lawsuit against a creditor due to the loss of important papers. And the king's treasurer, Béret de Essars, lamented the loss of funds used to finance the king's projects and expenses in the garrison city. Meanwhile, the poorest residents lost everything and had nothing to protect or declare. Uh, the highborn were distraught over the loss of their luxuries, including one lady whose daughters were left without dresses and unable to maintain their social status. Engineer Gaspard-Joseph de deliri meticulously assessed their losses and prepared a detailed list for the king, including the reconstruction costs for their hospital, chapel,
1: and convent. So I read the script this morning. Yeah. And uh, wrote some notes. Yep. And was talking about well it was karma and the entire city deserved it and yeah if you build a society on the backs of slaves and this was, sure. this was so you came at it from a judgy place judgy and then i was like well but maybe not everybody in the city was in agreement with slavery mm-hmm. and and it's hard because my first visceral reaction mm-hmm. was karma yeah like good I'm glad it happened. Tough bananas, right. Yeah. your daughter's dresses were destroyed, tough bananas, yeah, or this whole city burnt down. Screw you. you yeah, de- you deserved it because you had slaves, yeah, right. But then I'm like, well, maybe I should temper that because i I can't just cast judgment on everyone that lived in Montreal. No, back then, yeah,
0: exactly. Right? Local criminals, of course, took advantage of all the confusion looting homes or scavenging abandoned items from the streets. Even the smallest items, such as pins or shoe buckles, intact or not, were valuable as any metal object could be traded, sold or melted down for a profit. The civil authorities turned to the clergy to deliver a stern message from the pulpit, urging Montreal citizens to come forward with information about the guilty parties. Those found possessing stolen items would be held accountable, not just in the eyes of the law, but also in the eyes of God. Several individuals, mostly impoverished, were arrested and accused of the crime. Researchers familiar with the marginalized communities of Montreal will recognize some of the usual suspects for petty theft. The following morning, a rumor began to spread throughout the city that Angelique had started the fire in her mistress's attic with the help of her white lover, Claude Thibault. The news only fueled the anger and despair of the people whose homes were burned to cinders and seeking answers. With the weight of public rumor against her, Angelique was arrested in the garden of the paupers at the Hotel Dieu and thrown into the king's jail. Meanwhile, the other suspect, Claude Thibault, had fled and remained at large. He was never found. An edict by King Louis the Fifteenth had banned the presence of lawyers in Nouvelle-France, leaving Angelique to defend herself without any legal assistance. Angelique was brutally interrogated repeatedly to obtain her confession to the arson. She steadfastly maintained her innocence, claiming she was not responsible for the fire. But Marie Diet Manon, an Amerindian slave, declared to have heard Angelique say she would have her mistress burn. Over the next six weeks, the legal proceedings against Angelique progressed,
1: and she didn't have a chance. Well, she wasn't even recognized as a human being. Right? So, yeah. So there'd be no chance at all, would there?
0: no. No. During the trial, Angelique was subjected to intense interrogation with over a dozen confrontations and four official interrogations. Despite the intimidating tactics employed by the court authorities, she remained steadfast in her claim of innocence. Over 24 witnesses were called, 23 of whom stated that they believed Angelique had set the fire because she told them she would do so at one point or another. The turning point in the trial came on May 27th when a five-year-old girl named Amabel, who lived near Therese's house, testified that she had seen Angelique carrying burning coals into the attic just before the fire broke out. Amabel even pointed out the coal shovel Angelique had used. Angelique, defending herself, was incredulous and cried out, My little Amabel, come here by me and tell me who it is that told you to say this. I will give you a morsel of sugar. Despite the young age of the witness, the judge deemed her testimony valid enough to move Angelique's trial to the next, more serious phase. Angelique was interrogated twice more, this time in the criminal seat, a low bench that allowed her interrogators to tower over her. This was a mandatory step in every trial for a crime punishable by death. Despite these interrogations' extreme and intimidating nature, Angelique continued to protest her innocence. After weeks of grueling testimony and questioning, the judge delivered the verdict on June 4th. Angelique's fate was sealed. She was found guilty and sentenced to death. The judge, however, was not satisfied with simply condemning her to die. He wanted to extract more information before she met her end. He hoped subjecting her to torture would force her to name her supposed accomplices, if there were any. The judge wrote, After having carefully examined the case made against the accused, I find that the said accused is sufficiently guilty and convicted of having started the fire in the house of widow Franchville, which caused the conflagration of part of the town. For punishment, I judge that she be condemned to make honourable amends and to have her hand cut off, and that she be thrown alive into the fire in a place in this town deemed most appropriate.' after being subjected to torture in order that she name her accomplices and that the judgment of the one named Thibault be delayed until the said accused has suffered such interrogation. And remember, he was never caught. The severity of the sentence was somewhat lessened when the case was appealed to the Conseil Superior on 12 June, which changed the punishment slightly. She was to be transported in a garbage cart to the church where she was to confess her guilt publicly. Afterward, she was to be tortured and hanged
1: before her body was burned. I think a a somewhat lessened sentence is kind of dancing on the head of a pin there. Right. So instead of like having your your hand
0: cut off and then being thrown alive into a fire, we're going to kill you first. That's pretty much the only... Torture
1: you and then kill you first. Right,
0: exactly. The form of torture used on Angelique was called the boot, or alternatively, the Spanish boot. The boot was a method of torture used in the Middle Ages, particularly in Europe, to extract information or confessions from prisoners. The boot was made of iron or wood and had a narrow cavity inside where the victim's leg was inserted. The device was then tightened with screws or ropes and wedges were driven between the device and the leg. The wedges were driven gradually one by one with increasing force until the bones were shattered and the flesh was crushed. The process was excruciatingly painful and could take hours or even days to complete. Boot torture was used as a form of punishment for crimes such as theft, treason, and heresy, as well as a means of extracting information or confessions from prisoners. It was also used to punish slaves who attempted to escape as a deterrent to others. Angelique's torture was carefully documented. Quote, in the tight boot, the said accused stated that she knows no other person and that it was not her. A wedge was inserted, and she said, I want to die, it is I and no one else. With the second strike, she stated that she preferred to die, that no one assisted her in setting the fire. With the third, she repeated the same. With the fourth, she asked to be hanged, that it was her alone. Following which, for the extraordinary, we had a second wedge inserted and struck. With the first strike, she said, put me to death. With the second strike, she said, it's me alone. With the third, she said, hang me, it's me. And with the fourth, she said, it's me with a grilling pan and no one advised me to do it. It was a thought, an evil thought that came to me. The accused was then unbound and made to sit. We interrogated her as to whether it was not true that she set the fire to the to the said house of Dame Franchville in in concert with another person. She stated that no one aided or advised her, that it was her own doing. It is I, sirs. Put me to death. I have no accomplice. End quote. Horrible.
1: Terrible. That torture would break legs, break bones. But torture is completely unreliable as, as a means of getting information or truth getting the truth it will get you information because but it might be the wrong right the person will say things i mean it's been a known fact for years now and and i think you know to me i think torture is primarily used to confirm the torture's bias in seeking revenge sure more than it is uh, and it almost kind of gives a a credibility to the brutality by going see she said she did it right right yeah and i'm glad she held out and, and didn't didn't try to pull in anyone with her at least
0: Yeah, so Thibault may have been out of the picture already and it was something that she decided to do on her own or maybe he was involved and she actually protected him right up to the very end. Who knows? Well, he never admitted to it and no one knows what happened to him. Never heard from him again, did we? Yeah. Angelique was hanged in Montreal on June 21st, 1734. The king's scribe wrote about the fulfillment of the sentence, translated from French. In the year seventeen hundred and thirty four, on the twenty first of June, at three o'clock in the afternoon, the present judgment was by me, the undersigned, read in the cell of the accused, and after the sacrament of confession was administered to her by the priest of the seminary of Saint Sulpice, she was handed over to the executioner, who led her to the door of the parish church of this town, where she made honorable amends with the torch in her hand, after which the executioner took her to the unoccupied space before the burned house, where she was hanged and strangled, and then thrown into the fire. Her ashes were thrown to the winds, in fulfillment of the sentence on this day and year, as indicated above. According to the entry about Angelique in the Canadian Encyclopedia, the burning of Montreal and the trial of Angelique shed light on the harsh realities of slavery in Canada that had persisted for over two centuries. Although there is a possibility that Angelique did not start the fire, She was an ideal target for the crime due to her status as a poor foreign enslaved black woman who held no rights within white society. Nevertheless, it is also possible that Angelique did start the fire. She had valid grievances against white society, having been forcibly taken from her homeland and stripped of her freedom and basic human rights. She had even attempted to escape from enslavement once before and was caught, and it is worth noting that arson also played a role in her previous escape attempt. Today, Marie-Joseph Angelique is revered as a symbol of black resistance and freedom. Playwright Lorena Gale wrote the play Angelique based on transcripts from Angelique's trial, which was performed in 1995 and later published in 2000. In February of 2012, the public square across from Montreal City Hall was named Place de Marie-Joseph Angelique in her honour. Slavery was gradually abolished in Canada through a series of laws and court decisions. In 1793, the Upper Canada Legislature passed the Anti-Slavery Act, which made it illegal to import slaves into the province of Quebec. In 1807, the British Parliament abolished the transatlantic slave trade and in 1833, the British Empire abolished slavery throughout its colonies. However, slavery was not fully abolished in Canada until 1834 when the Slavery Abolition Act was passed by the British Parliament, which officially ended slavery in all British colonies and territories. However, the legacy of slavery and injustices faced by enslaved people continue to impact Canadian society today. So here's where we should talk about something that you pointed out to me that I was actually unaware of. Yeah. Okay, so it's a little serendipitous that we're doing this episode when we are. It was on my radar to do for quite some time, but tell me about it. When you sent
1: me the script, I thought you sent me the script because of a recent fire in Montreal that killed seven people. Right. And after the script, I started doing a bit of research and found out that Most historians think that the house that was set on fire back then was near the corner of St. Paul and Saint-Laurent in in old Montreal, which was just Montreal at the time. And this fire on the 17th of March was on that corner.
0: So on that exact same corner. Yes. All these years later. Yeah. That is so weird. Yeah. What a strange coincidence.
1: Have you seen the news about that? I have. I have seen the news. It was horrific. Horrific. And, um, you know, one of the victims made a 911 call saying she's in a room with no windows. Yeah. And I think the city's calling for a um, an, an, an investigation, a, sure. a public hearing. Sure. Because they're not sure if there were fire alarms. They're not sure. This raised lots of questions about the you know rental apps out there because most of the people that died were in a rental app um apartments okay and so now questions are being raised around the checks on the places that are being rented and all of Mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things and did the landlords who own these places actually have proper fire codes wow i mean that it was a it was a horrible like That many people don't often die in fires in Canada.
0: Yeah. And I'll I'll post some links to this story uh, about the more recent fire in our show notes. Yeah. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one eight seven 877 dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, let's get on with voicemails. And uh, our first one, I do believe, is from uh, a longtime friend of the show, uh, Great Big Pete. How about that? Look at this. Let's listen to what Great Big Pete has to say.
2: Hey friends, great big Pete here. Uh, Wait a minute, I I can call you that, right? I didn't just make it weird, did I? (sighs) Anywho, uh, Mike and Matt, I'm calling about your spy episode. I'm also calling from in front of the plaque where the Gushenko residence is here in Ottawa. It's a lovely, cool day today. And there's tons of Cold War history in this town. Holy crap, is there ever a lot of it. Anyways, you talked in this episode about the uh, distant early warning line, or the dew line. Uh, fun fact, my granddad actually worked as a flying officer during the Second World War, and he flew out of the, uh, Torbay, Newfoundland, and he was a radar operator on the Canthos and Catalina aircraft, uh, keeping our country safe from the Nazi U-boat. Neat thing is, the details from that, uh, all of his sorties and all of his missions, as far as I can tell, is actually cl- still classified. Uh, anyways, later on in his career, he was wing commander uh, here in town, and he designed the dewline radars and also the base plates that they sit on. So that's a little part of history that uh, you just reminded me of. So uh, thanks for uh, all the good shows, and keep it up, and uh, go shit in your hat, please. I'm sorry. Uh, And give Steve my love. Who is a good dog? Yes, you are. You are a good dog. Yes, you are, Steve. Steve's a good dog.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Great Big Pete is back again. I love when Great
1: Big Pete calls in. Great Big Pete has a great voice.
0: He really does. He's he's got the perfect voice for calling in (laughs) and giving like little blurbs of information and
1: then. Saying nice things to your dog. It, you know, I when he when you're playing that, I just randomly Googled Great Big Pete. Okay, and the first hit was, uh, Great Big Pete is a Canadian singer-songwriter, who's pretty terrible at the best of times. He is also an unsolicited telephone interview. Enthusiast. Oh no, no! Now, <laughs> now I don't know if this is the great Big Pete. Where are you finding this? Where is I this? I just googled it. Was the, it was the top hit on when I googled? Wow! I just googled. So I don't know if it's the great Big Pete. If it is a same great Big Pete, um, I will listen to the music and yes. I'll tell you if if it's um, terrible. terrible at the yeah. best of times or not. And if it is you doing unsolicited unsolicited. Telephone interviews. We like your voicemails. Yes, we do. <laughs> we really, we really do. We appreciate. So, so, so call back next week and tell us if it's if it's if it's that if you do music. Yeah, I yeah. want. I want to know. I'm interested now in finding out. I want to know,
0: and I, I'm wondering if. That review of Great Big Pete was
1: written by Great Big Pete. <laughs> it sounds like Great Big Pete wrote it himself, yeah. which is fun. So I really want to know if it's if, if you're the same Great Big Pete. If not, that's cool. We still love you. Yeah. Um, but let us know. Regardless. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> uh, let's listen to another voicemail. We've got three this week. So here's another. Hey, dudes, what's crack a Big T here from the province of sunny Alberta. I talked to you guys a couple years ago when I was driving my combine through my wheat field. But hey, uh, long-time listener, it's good to catch up for you, but uh, I was just wondering maybe if you could play a couple uh, or look into a couple cases up here in Alberta, uh, mainly Edmonton, uh, the
2: Melissa Latane case and the punky gustus in case that was back in the, the mid 80s but uh if you have a look at both of those i'd be look forward to hearing
0: them on your show so have a great day and uh go take a crap in your
2: cap peace
1: there you go another great voicemail <laughs> i want to know so i used to sit in the combine with my grandpa yeah and they were i think in the 70s they're probably smaller combines mm-hmm. And in Alberta I'm picturing I'm picturing him having a massive combine. Yeah. Like uh Jeremy
0: Clarkson sized from Clarkson's Farm. I oh. know you don't like Jeremy Clarkson, so I'm this is the
1: only thing recently that I've seen. That came up on a flight yesterday. Oh. Person sitting I was sitting beside his talking. Have you about seen that Clarkson's show? Farm? Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's it's actually quite good and it, it humanizes Clarkson in a in a way that you might be pleased with. But it, anyway. You don't anyway, have to
1: watch it. But thank you for calling in. Mike, yeah. Mike, have you um talked and, and...
0: Those cases are on my list to do. Uh, okay. Punky Gustafson was a little girl uh, who was murdered. So I, I kind of, I kind of struggle. I'm not so familiar with the other one, but it is, I have put it on my list. Uh, But I struggle with kids. Mo- both Matthew and I struggle with talking about children being murdered. So, but at the same time... It, it, there are some fascinating facts around that case that do make it quite compelling. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Thank you for calling. Yes. Thank well, you. And I'm not going to give you a job because you're farming and you're in a combine. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And that's an important job. That is an
0: important <laughs> job. All right. And we know great big Pete is a terrible singer. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we, we want to know. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think it's singing. I think it's just music. Oh, music. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. Here's another. Voicemail.
2: (laughs) I love your message. Hello, Mike and Matthew. I'm Stephanie calling from Thunder Bay in the province of Ontario, as you would say, Mike. I'm a long time listener, first time caller. I've been following your podcast from the very beginning. Your show is the highlight of my week. And in the summer, when on road trips, I'll listen to my favorite episodes to get me through the long drive back home to Ottawa. What makes your show so great is the sensitive, sensitivity you show towards the victims and the victims' families, as well as your playful banter. Both of your voices are so calming, and I have been known to fall asleep listening to you, thankfully never while driving, though I can't say the same for my passengers. Thank you both for all that you do, and from the bottom of my heart, vrashidata Also, super curious what Matthew thinks I do for a living. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. Bye.
0: Okay, so there you go. Somebody uh, wants to know
1: what you, what she does for a living. I know exactly what she does. For what? What movie. is it? She lives in Thunder Bay. Okay. Have you seen the movie Stardust?
0: Yeah, I did, and I quite liked it. Where they have the airship? It's like Neil Gaiman, a uh, Neil Gaiman yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. They have the airship. Yep. And they collect lightning. Oh, so she's a lightning collector in Thunder Bay. Yes. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. What a lovely thing to
1: be. Yeah, and if you haven't seen that movie, see it as one of my all-time favorites.
0: It is a great film. Yeah. Uh It's fantasy. Yep. But it is one of those kind of, like, the story is so compelling, it's it's a must-watch.
1: Yeah, so fun, uh, lightning collector. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Appropriate place to be doing it.
0: Oh, 100% appropriate. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A we would love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All righty, it is time for us to uh, thank our patrons. And this week, we have, first up, Kate. Host. And Kate is from Los Angeles, California, home of the Los Angeles Angels and the great pitcher hitter, Otani, Shoei Otani. I've been watching a lot of baseball because I got Sportsnet, okay. and Shoei Ot- Otani is fantastic. What a great baseball player. Anyway, Japanese okay. guy, great guy, very cool. So, sorry to... Sort of side side swipe. Do you like
1: baseball?
0: I I don't. I haven't watched baseball in years, but I'm getting back into it. Fun. Yeah. I want to go to a Canadians game with you uh, here. Vancouver Canadians at Nat Bailey Stadium. And maybe we can organize something where some listeners can come and hang out with us at a baseball
1: game. Nat Bailey. Is that named after the guy that started? White Spot. White Spot. Yes. And Triple O's. (laughs) Yeah. Same guy. Okay. So, K-Post. Is
0: from Los Angeles. And what does Kate do there in Los Angeles, Matthew? With a name like Post, I think she's a journalist. Okay. Yeah. See, I think Los Angeles, when I think of Post, I think she's in post production, perhaps an editor, <laughs> a movie editor, or something like that. But okay.
1: But the difference. Okay. She's an editorial editor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's fun. Yeah. So she's the last bastion of the free press. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, nonsense going on around the press. Like, all Kate Post makes sure that there's balanced opinions and facts right down the middle. The type of journalists we want. Yes. Thank you, Kate Post. Balanced we- opinions, facts, facts. <laughs>
0: not alternate facts, not but fa- actual facts. Not fact factets. Factets. Facts light. (laughs) Anyway, we have a new Prime Minister, which is amazing. And uh, she is from London, Ontario, Matthew, your old stomping grounds. And her name is Autumn Buckingham. Autumn Buckingham. What a great name. Autumn
1: Buckingham. I was in London, Ontario uh, yesterday um, from when we're recording this episode. Share, Yeah. Yeah. So she's a prime minister.
0: She is, uh, which I'm so grateful that someone came in at that level. That
1: means a lot. That's like a superstar level. That is. So, I mean, with a name like Buckingham. Yes. I think she's beyond prime minister. She's queen. She's royalty. Yeah, royalty. We're we're talking some dark poutine royalty here. Well, you know... Autumn Buckingham, London, and I think she's royalty. So what if
0: she's royalty? I guess she doesn't have a job because that's the job. But what does she do with her spare time? Does she have hobbies like corgis and hunting and fixing trucks like uh, Queen Elizabeth II did or uh you know, our our new King Charles loves the environment and uh and yelling at people around? <laughs>
1: I I think she is a, I think she supports the arts shows like um, Dark Poutine. Oh, yeah. Somebody has to do that. So she's a a true arts Patreon. (laughs) Excellent. Well,
0: she is a patron of the arts if she's come and, and done this for us. So we appreciate
1: that, Autumn. Yeah, I'm, and and I'm sitting here wondering where she lives. I was just there, so I'm like, I wonder where she lives. I know where she lives because her address. Oh, but is here. We, we aren't gonna. we, no, we, aren't, gonna, we aren't gonna say. We that. don't do. We don't dox our listeners. I'll well, look later and I'll see if she lives close to my brother or my mom. There you go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Autumn. Next we have Kristen
0: Next we have Kirsten Davis, and Kirsten is from a place with the coolest name ever. Cool. California, C-O-O-L, cool. Is that a real place? That is a real place. Cool. Wow. Cool, where, where are you from, man? I'm from cool, California. Listen to me trying to be like, that's how somebody cool would talk. That is not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the 60s. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> what does Kirsten Davis do in California? cool california nothing she just
1: chills. she's just chilling (laughs) and cool way too cool for a job too cool too cool for school oh
0: there you go does she have any hobbies i always like to give somebody a little something she's got to do
1: something what does she do yeah for a hobby she writes messages in the sand where the waves Get them, and so so people around the world. Because she lives near this beautiful beach in California, right? Yeah. So people around the world who have visited there, if they have a loved one die, they send her a message to the loved one, and she writes them during the lower tide, just for them to be there for a minute, just like life itself. It's
0: so ephemeral,
1: and to be yeah. washed away. Wow, so that's lovely. That's what she does for a living.
0: Well, thank you, Kirsten. You're serving a a, a great service to the people who who really need it. Yeah. Well, that's really nice. That's a nice job. I just made that up, and I actually think it's a beautiful job. I think that's a job that That should be a real thing. Literally,
1: just came out of my mouth.
0: Right? Wow. Wow. I think uh, maybe uh, that is a job that I would do. I think uh, our our friend Art talks about like writing messages in the sand to himself, and and, yeah, Uh, he's he's a good egg. We're moving on to PayPal, uh, donut money donors, and we had one this week. And, and that her name is Joanna McLeod. And Joanna says, go take a poop in your toques from Joanna McLeod in Barrie, Ontario.
1: Joanna. Joanna. We know Joanna. Do we? Yeah, I think, yeah. She, I think she's in the yard. Yeah, yumber yarder. Thank you, Joanna.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're always happy when we have a yumber yarder. And when I think Barrie, Ontario. What do you think when you think Barrie, Ontario? Well, that's where my friend, not to bring things down. Uh, (laughs) But but here I go. Not to bring things down, but my friend Mike passed away in Barrie, Ontario. Uh, But his sister, if she still owns it, uh, she owns a sports bar in Barrie, Ontario. Oh, yes. Yeah, called The Locker Room. The Locker Room in uh, Barrie, Ontario on 201 Cundles Road East. Okay. Yeah. So if you go and if Dana is still the owner of that bar, just tell her Mike Brown says hi and she'll probably poo her pants. But well, she was like my, my sister, you know, that's how close, that's how close we were. I mean, Mike and I were close. I was close with her family, her mom and and dad. So she, she's the only one left. Her mom's gone. Her dad's gone. And her brother is gone. Hmm. So. Just if you go to the to the sports bar which is the locker room in Barrie Ontario tell Dana that Mike says hi. Mike Brown says hi.
1: So Joanna owns a uh, dance studio. Okay. In Barrie. So yep. she's, a, she's a dance teacher and, and it's called the Cha-Cha Lounge.
0: The Cha-Cha Lounge. Yeah. Wow. The Cha-Cha Lounge. That sounds fun. 1
1: 2 Cha-cha cha 1 2 cha 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 Well,
0: someone's got to do
1: it 1 2 cha, cha cha I
0: would like to learn to dance but I'm I don't know if uh I have the uh agility for it but it might help to improve my agility because that's kind of how dance works isn't it you know
1: I would love to see you doing the, the flamenco with a skirt and whoosh
0: well why can't I be the dude in the... I guess I could be like top half the dude and then
1: the bottom half, the lady. I'd just like you to do, to see you doing total lady side flamenco. Sure. I think you'd be good at it. Actually. I probably would have fun. <laughs> have, have you ever worn heels? I have. And? Uh, I look
0: like a lumberjack stomping around. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the most, I don't have the most feminine gait, uh, like do it for doing drag, but I have done it. I have done drag. Matthew's staring at me like. Oh, my God. Here's something about Mike I didn't know. Like, like a performance or just you just... I did a, per, I, it was a... It was a comedy skit in which I did drag.
1: Fantastic. hmm
0: So... Long blonde wig. And I've never... Little tight black co- cocktail dress that highlighted the part that uh, shouldn't be highlighted when it's in a cocktail dress. And I've never done drag. Well, I mean, you don't have to be... Gay to do drag Anybody can do drag This is true Yeah Dame Edna Dame Edna Was Dame Edna not Homosexual No Oh there you go Yep I I just assumed No. Nope. And you know what that does Makes an ass out of you
1: And me No
0: <laughs> See and, and you And you <laughs> so, Thank you Joanna And keep doing that cha 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 Yeah Keep doing the cha 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 Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. and that is it for dark poutine so until next time don't forget don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple bye everybody goodbye